If I were ever reborn, and I think I probably was, it was through an awareness that the canoe is a vessel of discovery. That's James Raffin, author, filmmaker, teacher, explorer, and former executive director of the Canadian Canoe Museum. He's our guest on this episode of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast brought to you by One Ocean Expeditions. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth, and it's just a fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people. We have Simpson about June 10th with the Fur Brigade, consisting of a number of York boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us, it means that Welcome to Explore, the Canadian Geographic podcast, where every week we talk to some of the world's greatest explorers about their adventures and how Canada, its landscape, wildlife, people, and history have shaped their spirit of discovery. I'm your host, David McGuffin. Our guest today has a long and impressive resume, but if you were to boil it down to a couple of words, you might describe James Raffin as a canoe evangelist. If you want to learn about this country, this nation of rivers, this river of nations called Canada, you need to have facility in a canoe. Mm -hmm. And a canoe will teach you about the country in uh, a series of layers. It was made of materials with design that comes from the first peoples of the country. It shows regional differences in how it's constructed from east to west to north. It's expression in the north, the kayak, the related vessel, or the umiak, or some of the big dugouts in the west coast, is this this incredible porthole into uh, the essence of a nation. Using the canoe as his portal, the Guelph, Ontario native has studied this nation, and especially the far north and its people, as a journalist and professor at Queen's University. His documentaries have aired on the CBC, the National Geographic, and Discovery Channels, His best-selling books have included Fire in the Bones, the biography of Canadian canoeing icon Bill Mason, and Emperor of the North, about Sir George Simpson, the legendary 19th century Hudson's Bay Company governor, as well as chronicling his own adventures, such as circumnavigating the globe by following the Arctic Circle. He's a fellow of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society and the Explorers Club, He's a former chair of the Arctic Institute and recipient of the Campsell and Diamond Jubilee Awards. When I caught up with James Raffin, he looked tanned and wind-weathered. He'd just returned from a month traveling around the Marshall Islands in the Western Pacific, sailing in Micronesian canoes, long twin-hulled vessels with triangular sails he kept audio diaries while he was there. So I'm sitting on the bow of Okeanos. It's a beautiful, sunny Thursday morning. We have made incredible time overnight, sailing at times up to nine knots, which for uh, this vessel is, is remarkable. 
This canoe journey was part of a mapping expedition for an atlas of the Marshall Islands being produced by Canadian geographer Donko Tabarossi. Raffin's role, in part, was a mapping of the cultural impact of climate change on these remote, low-lying islands. For our Explore conversation, we met in the study of his home in Sealy's Bay, Ontario, on the Rideau Lakes just north of Kingston, with a full rack of canoes in the yard behind us. We started talking about his latest expedition. The Marshall Islands, uh, imagine 32 coral atolls, 34 maybe, situated in uh, a million square kilometers of ocean. They're about halfway between Hawaii and Australia. So you're mapping these islands, and these have not properly been mapped before ever? No, is the answer to that. Um, Which is amazing. You sort of think the world has been mapped at this point. Yeah, you do think that. Yeah. And so these islands, which are strategically located in the middle of the central Pacific Ocean, have been the object of the affections of the Germans, the Japanese, latterly the Americans, who won them in the Second World War and then promptly started testing nuclear bombs in the Marshalls. And so people would know the name Bikini Atoll. Right, Um, yeah. So... Climate change is happening all over the world, and these are calcium carbonate. They're coral islands, and the acidity of the oceans increasing. The vigor of the storms is increasing. The level of the sea is increasing. And, I mean, the New York Times will tell you that the, the marshals are disappearing. Um, but there's a kind of a cultural decay as well as a physical geographic decay, and uh, Donko's very much interested in that. And he, uh, he knew of my work in the Arctic. And, of course... I'm always up for a a grand adventure, Mm -hmm. and uh, this was a different canoe trip. We were traveling in a Polynesian sailing canoe, but um, I was really, really interested in looking at 40 years of living and learning and loving in the Canadian, well, in the circumpolar world, looking at uh, the things that I learned about climate change and cultural change from a different place on the planet. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was not disappointed. Now, was was there a lot of overlap in what you were seeing? Well, yes. So you've got these atolls, like 1% of the Marshall Island area of ocean, something like that, is land. The rest is water. And so you've got these little islands, some of which are populated. I mean, the population of the Marshall Islands is around 60,000. And there, I think of Nunavut, you know, with 26 communities spread over almost a million square kilometers of land. And I'd never thought of Kalaktuk or Johaven or any of those. I never thought of those places as islands, but effectively the things are the same. But the other thing that was completely the same, I mean, we visited mostly uninhabited atolls, gathering biological data, doing uh, mapping and taking a cultural overlay from research onto the ground to find evidence of things that have happened there in the past. The thing where we did encounter very substantially uh, communities that are in the Marshall Islands, but not in the center, of, like in Majuro, the biggest city, when we encountered people there, they talked about climate change the way the people in Siberia or in Scandinavia or in Greenland or Nunavut talk about it. They said, yeah, that's something we see from season to season. We see the changes. The changes that are affecting us most vividly and most seriously are changes in our culture, in our language, you know, burying the promise of the future in our young people who are taking their own lives at disturbing rates, Um, burying the last syllables of land nuance language with elders who are taking with them as subsequent generations are uh, speaking other languages. So there was real parallel there. 
These islands, the Marshall Islands, these coral atolls, I mean, the volcanoes they're on are millions of years old, but the coral that's built up, it's only been there for two or 3,000 years. And so the navigators of the Pacific who populated these islands, going back, say, two or 3,000 years, came there in canoes. And, of course, like so many other places, canoes were replaced by manufactured boats and motors and so on. But when you live in these incredibly remote places, fuel is at a premium repair opportunities are at a premium. And when you make a vessel of transportation and communication out of available local materials to meet a local need, doesn't require fuel, they're coming back. And they're coming back very proudly to the point that uh, one of my interviews that I did is there's a program in Majuro in the main city in the Marshall Islands where it's not really about canoes. It's about getting young people to appreciate who they are, the language associated with being Marshallese in the face of American, you know, the juggernaut of an American culture that comes to them in so many different ways. But what are they doing to give the kids a sense of pride in who they are and to teach them about who they are? They're making canoes and learning to sail them. And then I think probably one of the most heartwarming and surprising, it still just makes me smile when I think about it, on an atoll called Utirik, where canoes are alive and well, every night the kids in town meet on the lagoon. There's a very shallow place, but the wind blows from the northeast. The northeast trades blow all the time. And they all have model canoes. They start when they're little with a way of bending uh, a palm leaf into a little sailboat. And they race those in the very shallow water where you might wakeboard along the beach. But the bigger kids, they wade across to the other side of this lagoon and they race these sailing canoes. So they're actually learning about the mechanics and the physics and the design of sailing canoes. So some of these might have a a sail, uh, like a hull that would be a meter or more long. Uh, and a sail that's probably uh, a square meter or more, but they're exactly like the ones that their families are doing. And it just it just was amazing for me to see that, then see the teens helping their parents with the bigger vessels, and to see that that technology is as relevant uh, as a cultural perpetuator and as a a vessel of transportation and communication now as it ever was and, you know, going back prehistorically. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're there looking at sort of the impact of climate change and, and cultural decay caused by that. I mean, just seeing scenes like that, does that give you hope? Absolutely. There's a kind of a, a here and now to the perspective of people at the edge of civilization, including the Marshall Islands, where they're still living fishing You talk to the people on the ground, they'll tell you that things are different today than they were in their grandparents' time. But this is, again, it's different physically, Uh, the water's higher, you know. Even that, the, the bigger picture of climate change and the rhetoric, the words, the policy directives that come out of that, I didn't hear about any of that. People still trying to feed their kids. Yeah, they're trying to educate their kids. They're trying to make life in uh, very trying circumstances, and in many respects, just solving the problems of the day in the most spectacularly positive way. It really does give me hope mm-hmm. that for all the hand wringing that we do when we project forward from the circumstances that we've created now, there's something to be said for people who spend an equal amount of energy attending to the here and now. And uh, there's a lesson there, I think. Let's take a quick break now to hear from our sponsor, One Ocean Expeditions. 
Small Ship Expedition Cruise Specialist, One Ocean Expeditions offers one-of-a-kind marine travel experiences in the remote regions of the world. Explore a range of innovative itineraries and discover the One Ocean difference by visiting oneoceanexpeditions.com today. And now, back to our podcast. I want to take us back to the origins of James Raffin. So there's a rumor, you can find it all over the internet, that you were born in a canoe on the Speed River. My mom always disagreed with that, but it always made her laugh, so I never did anything about it. So it's a lie. I was born in St. Joseph's Hospital in Guelph. But um, if I were ever reborn, and I think I probably was, it was through an awareness uh, that the canoe is a vessel of discovery. The Speed River does flow through my earliest memories, uh, and they're very warm memories in spite of the shopping carts and old tires and dead fish that were in that river at that time. I think the river's actually in better shape now. Um, but that those memories of growing up on a river in southwestern Ontario are really the foundation. Right. There was a canoe? It was rafts first, and then uh, our neighbor had a canoe. Boy Scouts had canoes, the Guelph Recreation Commission... And then my dad, who was a surgeon lieutenant in the British Navy, his first, uh, our first family vessel was a styrofoam sailboat called a snark. Mm. And, uh, styrofoam. And I paddled that with the strokes I learned at Scouts. And uh, it just, I think, probably nearly broke his heart that I had no use for the tiller or the, the rudder or the centerboard or the lateen sail or any of that stuff. And it was light. I could put it on my head as a ten-year-old yeah. walk across the river and put it in, and then tip it over and do my strokes. And yeah. And so when you're on that river, I mean, it's a sense of freedom. What is it that's attracting you to? Yeah, it was freedom. It was um, getting out of my parents' orbit, uh, my mother in particular, um, and uh, it was um, it was a place to wonder. And uh, you know, where does the water come from, and where does it go, and uh, uh, you know, at some point, as I was reading about expeditioning, and we didn't have a television, and I think that's probably a godsend. My parents blithely said, you know, once you've read every book in the house, we'll think about getting a TV. Um, but as I was reading, including um, Hauling Clancy Hauling's Paddle to the Sea, I got the notion that, um, you know, this little river across from my house could take me anywhere. You know, it could take me to the sea, it could take me to the North Pole, it could take me to the tip of Mount Everest. And uh, uh, in a way, I'm still following that kind of delusional dream. But it's not delusional, though. No, it turns out it's not. Yeah, because it's all connected. Like, everything's it is, connected. It is totally connected. And uh, I remember, uh, I think it was Rick Boychuk was the editor of Cangio, and he wanted a, a canoe story, and I'd offered him a, a story about a, a river like the one you've just come off the wind and the peel, and and uh, my dad got really sick, and uh, and he said, well, um, are there any rivers closer to your dad? And I said, well, why don't I go back? And uh, and I did. I While my dad was very, very ill, eventually died, I paddled the speed in the Grand as an adult. Um, I went right to Dunville, to Lake Erie, yeah. and uh, that notion that I could just go upstream mm -hmm. to Thunder Bay or downstream to Cape Breton. And, of course, it has all sorts of layers on it now, having appreciated and written about the life of Bill Mason, who gave us Paddle to the Sea, the movie. Yeah. Um, or, you know, having the great fortune to marry a woman from Nova Scotia. You know, I, I realize that it is all connected. Yeah. 
I'd love to go back to Bill Mason, actually, because you wrote really the definitive biography of Bill Mason. He's someone you knew as well. And so Paddle to the Sea, when I grew up as, as a kid, Paddle to the Sea, I probably saw it a dozen times in, just in elementary school, right? It was pervasive. Bill Mason was a national figure in this country. Award-winning documentaries and Path of the Paddle was a best-selling book and probably remains the Bible of canoeing to this day. But I think he's slightly disappearing in the national dialogue now. And I, I would love for you to make a pitch on why everyone listening to this should learn more about Bill Mason and what his legacy was. We should remember, you're right. I mean, he is fading from consciousness. Like To say the name Bill Mason in a, just in a public presentation in a library or something doesn't get universal nods of acknowledgement that they know what you're talking about. But Bill was a person who knew story, and he also exuded a love of the wild that had more than just scientific dimensions. There was a spiritual dimension. And in Bill's case, it was a pretty patently Christian perspective, but he loved what he called the native voices. And mm -hmm. when he finally took the stuff off the clipping room floor, which editing floor, which he's, he was really good at and making features, I mean, turning his wolf films into, you know, eventually into Death of a Legend, which was a feature film that came from these sort of shorter films. Mm -hmm. from the, and then when he made Water Walker yeah. out of the clippings from his canoe series, he was able to hold that together. And I think there was a genuineness. And I mean, his work's been translated into dozens of languages and it plays around the world still. And it's played by uh, people who, A, want to show Canada and they're not all that interested in the technical stuff about canoeing. But, you know, when you have somebody like Terry Tempest Williams down in uh, Salt Lake City who has a Bill Mason film festival, I think that festival, if it's still going on, is as much about a reverence for nature and as a kind of grounding philosophical foundation as it is about anything, you know, technical or instrumental having to do with canoes. Um, Bill ran at life full on and was a complex character. And uh, his uh, legacy is being lived by his daughter, Becky, and by his son, Paul. Um, Paul, the cartoonist, and Becky, the sort of professional paddler, you know, for anybody who digs and finds him, they will be delighted. But for anybody who is captivated by some of the younger people who are doing similar things and with similar kinds of messaging, those voices, too, are ones that uh, I think we need to listen to. No, absolutely. But I just think about him. I mean, he was genuinely a national figure, friends with Prime Minister Trudeau at the time. His films were in film festivals in New York and... There are definitely voices out there. And there's a lot of people writing about the outdoors now, but I don't feel like in this country at this time, we have someone at that level. What was it about him that put him at that level? I mean, one of the things he said to me, and I feel really fortunate to have known him as just as a friend and a paddler, and uh, he al always said, you should never hector people with your messaging and that he tried in his film to be 90% story, 10% message. And he said, you should never go beyond that. I think also he used film to make a character who was just totally engaging. I mean, I think in the end he was paddled to the sea and uh, he was on a journey and he came across obstacles along the way. And, and in a lot of ways, 
I mean, one of the revelations to me, you know, with the kindness of his wife, Joyce, where I took his Baker tent and his canoe and I went to Old Woman Bay and I just sat there one fall as I was researching his biography to try to get some insight, further insight into this guy. And um, it was there that I, I figured out that Bill maybe saw himself uh, as as the little guy who could, uh, you know. I mean, he nearly died. Uh, he didn't grow, and he ended up in the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, because, I mean, I have a picture of him when he was 13, and his sister, I think, was nine, his sister Elizabeth. You know, he was smaller than his sister, his nine-year-old sister, when he was when he was a 13, teenager. Yeah. But but he uh, was given a therapy there and grew. Right. Um, he still was a small character with a very, very big aura. I spent my summers on Meech Lake, so Bill Mason was on Meech Lake as well. And I can't say I knew him, I was young, but um, we had an annual regatta on the lake and there'd be a lot of canoe events in it. And the Bill Mason story I always go back to is my, I had a friend staying with me that summer whose parents were going through a long, drawn out, not very pleasant divorce and he was staying with us and having a rough time. And uh, one of the events was um, the gunnel race. So you stood up in the gunnels and you paddled. And it's lots of fun wobbling around. And Bill was looking for a partner. And there's probably 60 people. And somehow he zeroed in on this sad kid, picked him out of the crowd, didn't know him, but kind of, I think, knew. Like, this kid needs something. And pulled him out and put him on. They'd race this thing. And my friend will tell you that story to this day. Like, deeply moving, you know? And he was a guy who just always had this twinkle in his eye, you know, and I think had this way of connecting. And that, that was a very personal version of that. But yeah, I always love telling that story. My favorite Bill Mason story is uh, my best man, Fred Lucemore, and his wife, Wendy Grater, who run Black Feather now. They, they adopted a boy called Quan Pham from uh, Vietnam. And uh, so he was cultured in the canoeing world. Right. One night, it's the NHL playoffs, and it's the Habs versus somebody in the forum. And uh, the camera pans around as it does who's who's there. And yeah. in, in behind the Montreal bench are these two guys, one little guy with white hair and another another dude. And Quan um, turns to his adopted parents and said, Hey, um, who's that guy beside Bill Mason? And, of course, it was Pierre Trudeau. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. And that's Bill Mason right there. Yeah. yeah. And that's what he meant to this country, I think, for a very long time. Yeah. Oh, he loved hockey, too. Actually, he's the one who made the uh, the first all-Canadian tool that I've ever seen, which is hockey stick on one end and paddle on the other. Oh, no way. Yeah, and I've made a few of those over the years as gifts, and uh, we keep one at the Canadian Canoe Museum just in case we need it. That's fantastic. That's possibly the most Canadian thing ever. Yeah. Another person you've written about is another great canoeist in this country's history is Sir George Simpson, who's sort of the great figure of the Hudson's Bay Company, the guy who really kind of shaped it into what it became. Why is he an important figure in, in the history of the canoe, do you think? To the best of my knowledge, he has gone further in one season. Now, he didn't paddle a stroke. He had this Praetorian band of Ganawagi paddlers, muscle men, to help him. These uh, massive birch bark canoes, right? Yeah. yeah, but he, in one season, went from New York City uh, to York Factory and the mouth of the Columbia River and back. Wow. And as far as I know, even amazing paddlers like Mike Ranta, you know, who's been back and forth across the country solo with his dog Spitzy a few times. But, you know, he's an epic paddler, but he didn't ever achieve uh, what Simpson did. So um, you're talking about New York up to the Hudson's Bay, over to the Pacific Coast, yeah. and then back. And then back. Amazing. Yeah. In, you're looking at, a, what, a five-month season probably there. Or yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, sort of chasing ice at both ends. Yeah, and uh, getting over the continental divide on top of it. Yeah, and so, you know, if you look at the sort of management techs, I don't know if management by walking around is still a term that people use, but, you know, here's a guy who was schooled in the sugar trade in the UK and came to North America at a time when the Hudson Bay Company and the Northwest Company had been duking it out so long that they both nearly run themselves into bankruptcy, and, and he... The, the companies merged, and that's when he became the governor. And he was a governor for 40 years and returned to profit on people's investment. But one of the secrets of his success in this nation of rivers was he managed by canoeing around. So he paddled from post to post, and he wanted to have a look at what was going on. And that was amazing. And he got a piper. His dad helped him get a Scottish piper with lungs of leather and who could march for 20 miles blowing the pipes the whole way. And uh, he had a real sense of show and style. And so they would paddle to the last corner before a post and then they'd get all decked out in clean clothes and they'd get the piper going and they had a little cannon on the side of the thing and he'd show up. Uh, but Simpson would enter a fur trade establishment and he would start with the, you know, the cook's helper, the lowest of the low in there. And he'd work his way and he'd talk to them. He'd say, well, you know, what are you doing? And and he would learn it. But so by the time he got to the factor and he would learn that the factor was a drunk or was mismanaging the company's funds in some way, or um, he would summarily sack him. Uh, the canoe is very much a part of how he did that. And uh still to this day speaks to this incredible quirk of geography that allows us to think about this country as a nation of rivers, you know. And for people like my friend John Wadland, who's a historian at Trent, he loves to say that, you know, if America was opened by the horse and cart, uh, that being a domesticated animal, the driver of that, Canada, he says, with a birch bark canoe was opened by a domesticated tree. And I, I love that notion. And that was something that Simpson figured out. I'm amazed what you're describing about managing this company, which covered an area basically the size of Europe, but doing it by canoe. It's amazing to me that he could do that, run this empire, but not be in the head office. It was amazing. And, and it was more than the size of Europe, David, at, at, I think the estimate at, at George Simpson held sway over one-twelfth of the Earth's surface. When wow. you look at the watershed of Hudson Bay, plus they had posts in Hawaii, um, you know, all the way up to what is now Alaska and so on. And that was a big departure for the Hudson Bay Company. It was a company of adventurers who were moving the game pieces on a board in London and with very little direct connection and Simpson just turned that completely around as a result I think salvaged the business interest of the combined Northwest company and the Hudson Bay company till he died in uh, in 1860 you know and the legacy in some ways lives on in that you think of all those great British trading companies and really the Hudson's Bay which still exists in this country today is the last one on his feet right Absolutely. And it tickles me that they're still, you know, the candy colored blankets, you know, the white blanket with the red, black, green and yellow striping is still there. And the canoe with that same striping, if you go past their boutiques in the airports of this country, you know, they're still trading on the iconography of the canoe in spite of the fact that what they really want to sell you is candles or doilies. But, but nevertheless, you know, it's a, a mercantile company that has gone through all kinds of iterations. Uh, but it did start on May 3rd, 1670, which is a long, long time ago. I want to sort of play on that a little bit, but there's a question I've been asking um, in this program is, we're in the 21st century. As we've discussed, a lot of the world's been mapped already. What does it mean to be an explorer at this point in our history? 
Um, I think it's somebody who's willing to go to the edge of what they know. And um, the days of geographic exploration are not over, but exploration takes all kinds of forms. It's an embracing, I think, of uh, risk, and risk is uncertainty. I mean, a lot of the work that I'm doing that really powers and fills my sails now is work that I'm doing with youth in the North, and a lot of that is musical. And that, you say, well, that, you know, that's, that's not conquering anything. I don't think exploration is about conquering. I think what it's about is embracing uncertainty. And in the case of working musically with youth, that has to do with helping kids look risk in the eye and helping them tell their stories. Mm-hmm. And that's a form of exploration. And these are in First Nations communities up north. and At some level, though, David, I'm... For some reason, for better or for worse, I mean, I'm a fellow of the Explorers Club, which is, uh, yeah, I don't know. At some level, I, I kind of cringe at the term. Yeah, but I think what you're saying, too, is we all have the ability to explore. Yeah, we do. You don't have to really leave home to do that. I mean, the risk comes in many forms, um, social, cultural, psychological risk. But the real essence of exploration, I think, you need to be able to accept that when you go to the edge of what you know, away from the fat, comfortable middle, it comes sometimes with pain. But that's just part of embracing a place where new insight and new learning dwell. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, fear and excitement are the same emotion, just expressed in different ways, right? I, mean, I never really thought of it like that. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the reasons for me to go to the Marshall Islands is part of me was was scared skinny about sharks and you know, being that you know, on a little tiny little raft in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. But I've learned in my time on Earth so far that if you're with people who live there, you're not going to die. You might be hungry, but uh, you're for sure are going to be inspired in ways that uh, you can never get inspired sitting in the comforts of home. When you go on a trip, and you've been on many, many trips, uh, is there something you bring with you? It's an essential tool, perhaps, or maybe just a good luck charm or some sort of talisman. I always travel with my dad's gold chiming pocket watch that I spirit away in my kit, and I I just had it. It was in with my toothbrush in the Marshall Islands because I had so little stuff. But I wind that every day, and it reminds me of him. Um, But it also reminds me that longitude didn't come easily, and... uh, I feel more authentic with that. Time comes from all sorts of different things. Stars, sun, uh, watches, computers. But the idea that you must attend to that ordering system, it almost makes time uh, a musical concept for me. That's probably the thing that has been more consistently on Journeys. A favorite place, a place, maybe a happy place you go to, or uh, just a place that brings you a good feeling inside in Canada? It's wherever my family is. And my main claim to fame, if I have one, is that I was fortunate enough to marry a woman from Amherst, Nova Scotia. And um, that circle of family and love and connection is what really grounds my venturing. Because home as a construct is, it's the reference point to whatever edge you're on. It's always the other end of the vector. And I don't ever get a bigger tickle than turning around 
and coming home. And I've done it from the North Pole, literally, and many other places besides. And for all of the the wonders of the things you see at the edge, the things you feel, that crazy amalgam of uh, fear and engagement that becomes so generative is never more alluring or intoxicating, I think, than the pull of home. And I count myself among the very, very lucky people to have that draw. Because without that draw, I'd probably be uh, sitting in the mall or in the corner of Tim Hortons, you know, talking about the old days. Yeah. Sealy's Point's a better spot. Sealy's Bay, Dave. Sealy's Bay. Sorry. Haskins Point. I'll tell you about Mr. Haskin another time. That sounds good. <laughs> Well, listen, James Raffin, I thank you so much for uh, giving us this time here in your place in Sealy's Bay. Let's go paddling. Let's go paddling. <laughs> that was James Raffin, best-selling author, filmmaker, educator, and fellow of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society on this episode of Explore. Check back in with us next Thursday for another fascinating Explore conversation, this time with Alana Mitchell, best-selling author of Seasick, on the deteriorating state of the oceans and her new book, Spinning Magnet, Why the Earth's Magnetic Poles Are Due to Flip. Music and production for Explore are by Robin Dumas of Soundshield Studios. And support for this podcast comes from the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. For 90 years, the RCGS has been dedicated to making Canada better known to Canadians and the world through print and digital media under the Canadian Geographic brand. It also funds expeditions, research, public events, educational materials, and much, much more. You can support the good work of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society by making a tax-deductible donation today at rcgs.org forward slash donate. <laughs>